Your stories don't define you. How you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker of Elkins Consulting. Many of my clients reach out to me because they're in transition. Their children are hitting milestone ages. They want more from their work. They're hitting a big number birthday. And they want to develop clarity about their natural strengths, what their next adventure might look like. In this series, you'll hear me ask my guests questions to dig deeply into the stories that shaped their lives, stories that uncover patterns and may unveil insights into dissatisfaction and also where their strengths lie and where they found and continue to find joy. This podcast's intention is to have listeners think of their own related stories and how they tell them, discovering the internal messages that are limiting their success and discovering how to shift their stories so they become positive life lessons to move them forward. If you're curious about what it would be like to work with me, visit elkinsconsulting.com and schedule a one-time 90-minute StrengthsFinder session. The guest that I'm highlighting today on Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, happens to be somebody I met on the Givitas platform, which is a reciprocity-style platform. And I asked him for some help. He generously agreed to it. And then he agreed to be on my podcast. So I'm so grateful. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Sarah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, absolutely. There's something about um, amplifying voices of people that need to be heard that makes my job as a podcast host much, much simpler. Um, Last year, I was definitely into amplifying the voices of people of color and, and marginalized voices. This year, I'm really more focused on scientists, and many of those are people of color as well. And today, I get to amplify your voice, um, a scientist who is actually speaking for other scientists, which makes me really happy. So, Scott, you know this question is coming. I always ask my guests to share something about themselves that most people might not know about them. So, what do you think? You have something to share? So while most people might know that I'm a chemist and have achieved a PhD in chemistry and worked in chem labs for most of my career, what they might not know is how did I get onto this path of being a chemist? And it's an interesting story that I'm happy to share. So think back to when you were a young teenager, you know, all the chaotic thoughts of being a young teenager. I'm 13 years old. I'm participating in a church youth group. We go on a visit to visit another youth group in another city, and there's a a night stayover. And so we are with another family. And there's three or four of us from the youth group who stay with this family. And over dinner that night, the father of that family talks about what he does. And he's a chemist, and he works in cancer research. And I was enthralled. And here I was, 13 years old never met a scientist before, never talked to a chemist in my life. And I go home the next day and I tell my parents, I'm going to be a chemist. And they look at me like, what is that? And why would you want to do it? And so I tell them the story. And, you know, I was 13 years old when this idea of being a chemist was sort of presented to me in an eloquent and and interesting way. And now, you know, I'm approaching 60 and I'm still on that path. And, you know, I'm very thankful for that individual who shared his story and it impacted my life in such a big and important way. And I've never second guessed it, right? I've never been on another path and I embraced that path completely. And it it has been really good for me. 
in many ways. Wow. 13 years old, you knew what you wanted to do. Yes. That is so impressive. I don't know. I, I only know maybe a handful of people in the thousands that I've met in my life that knew at that age what they wanted. I love that story for so many reasons. The first thing that popped into my head was simply that because this person shared a story about what they do in a way that was entertaining, attractive, warm, um, encouraging, I, I keep thinking about all the opportunities we have as adults to do things like that and that we don't take. What did your parents do? I mean, were they, did they talk about what they did? So, yes, my parents were both uh, very open with us about what they did. And so my dad worked in the banking industry. My mother was a school teacher until she decided to be a stay-at-home mom, which is, you know, also a very difficult job. And, and they were very open. They encouraged us to go to college. So they were both college educated. So going to college was an expectation in our family. And so there was discussion even younger than me at 13 of, well, what do you think you'd like to study? What do you want to do? And until I had this conversation with this random human, you know, it was random chaos of what I would respond. I was a pretty good student in school. I had lots of opportunities, but nothing that I was passionate about until that day. Oh, I love that. I love that. So when have you had an opportunity to pay that forward? I know you have. <laughs> so I, I do truly believe in the pay it forward concept, and that's important to me on many levels. But one of the things I like to do is to talk about science with students of all ages. So I have volunteered in elementary schools and middle schools and high schools and in colleges to just talk to people about what is the life of a scientist like? What do we do? What do we think about? How do we contribute? What are our challenges? And to university or high school students, well, can you make a living at it? And can you support a family? And what are the sort of fringes of being a scientist? And so I've done that throughout my career, and it's, it's very rewarding. And while I hope I'm helping the students that I'm talking to, it's good for me, and I like doing it. I hear you. I love that. And for some reason, um, as you were speaking, I felt like you had a specific time or, or situation in your vision of a time that you walked into either a classroom or some sort of auditorium or something and got to speak to a group. Did, did something pop into your head, an image of one of those particular moments? You know, I've enjoyed all of them, but there's one that's my favorite, and that's that I have a good friend who's a professor at Drexel University, a chemistry professor, and he started a course called Chemical Careers. And one of the things he realized was he's been a professor his whole life, right? He, he doesn't, he send, he trains students to go out and work in the world, but he hasn't followed that path. And we were talking about it and I was trying to help him, but ultimately I just volunteered. How about if I come in and talk to your students about what we do with reading resumes and conducting interviews and onboarding new employees. And one of the things I really like about volunteering at Drexel and now the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia both is that the students ask me questions. Right? And so I can provide a lecture on those topics and I can share my experience, but my most favorite part is answering their questions because they have a wide range of questions and some things that I might not have predicted 
And so it's hard for me to include those into the slide deck, but I really enjoy setting the slides aside and then stepping in front of the room and saying, ask me anything. And, and those are very rich conversations and they also allow me to tell more stories, which is fun. Which is something you're good at. So when um, you went for that first time at Drexel, you said, I'll, I'll come in, I'll talk to your students because teaching isn't the only option with a chemistry degree or with any particular science degree, but that's what people think about when they hear, oh, I'm going for my degree in chemistry. Oh, are you going to be a teacher? They do the same thing with math, I think, in general. So um, you're walking into that classroom the first time. Were you nervous at all? No, you know, it's interesting. I enjoy public speaking. I know that public speaking is almost always in the top five of people's fears. You know, there are more people who are afraid of public speaking than are afraid of spiders, right? Or afraid of lightning strikes. So public speaking is a fear for most people, but long time ago, my wife was worried about me working too much and not having any fun. And she strongly encouraged me to develop a hobby. And I think she expected me to build crossword puzzles or carve wood or, you know, do something. And I told her, you know, I, I really value your advice and I'm going to follow it. I'm going to build a hobby around public speaking. And she just looked at me like, what? <laughs> but wait, you're a scientist. <laughs> yeah. So a long time ago, I decided to build a hobby in public speaking. And now I'm quite comfortable going in front of an audience. And it doesn't matter whether it's two people or 2,000. It's a skill that I've developed, and it's something that I wanted to do, and it it gives me a lot of pleasure, and I enjoy it. Well, I can tell. I can definitely tell. So I, I keep wanting to come back to this first experience and the, the questions that were asked when you were standing in front of that first class talking about what science looks like in the in the world outside of academia. Can you walk me through that experience? It's interesting how students, especially ones who haven't worked, right? They, they went straight through from high school to college. They only have the perspective of the profession through the papers they read and through the labs that they take on campus. And it's very hard for them to get an impression of the broader ways that scientists can impact businesses, companies, the world around them. And I try to just pick out some points, right? To talk about a friend of mine who did a PhD in chemistry, but then went to law school and became a patent lawyer, or the friend of mine who did a PhD in chemistry and then became a salesperson. And there's all these different paths. And just being able to pull the curtain away and open up a much broader spectrum of activity to them is fun to me. And then to get them thinking, right? It's about what are you passionate about? And how can we link up then something they're passionate about with a career in science? And whether that's something about climate change or equity or underrepresented individuals, there's still a path to do that and to do science. Hmm, definitely. There are so many pieces of this that I'm, I'm enjoying. And one big one is this whole idea of telling students or, or helping them to understand what their day might look like with a degree in one of the scientific fields. Um, because I think every, every field needs to be represented that way in schools and among students, starting at a very young age. This is what my day looks like. I remember uh, my dad was uh, in the printing and publishing industry, and I used to go to his plant with him. 
when I was a little girl. And I remember I can still walk into a copy shop and have these incredible memories come back to me from the scents and the sounds of copiers and the paper and the ink. I mean, you can smell it. It's a distinctive smell. And then at 13, I got to go in and work in the hand bindery. So I knew what that looked like. I watched him interact with the, the print people and all the hand bindery people and the people who did the shipping. I even did opaquing. Do you remember back in the day? They had um, negatives and images, and you would have to fill in any white dots that weren't supposed to be there with black ink with a light table underneath you. And that was long before desktop publishing. And I did that one summer on a motorcycle magazine. <laughs> but I remember thinking, okay, this is definitely not something I want to do for my career. But I got to experiment with it. And a lot of my friends didn't do any of that. They didn't work at a restaurant when they were in high school, or they didn't get to go and work in a printing plant and do hand bindery in high school. And um, I think that's why I'm so attracted to what you're talking about with that, the being able to go and talk to students. So do you remember any particular students that you had that impact on or anything later on that you found out you influenced that you didn't know at the time? So let me not answer your question directly, but answer it indirectly. There's a book I really like called This Is Day One by Drew Dudley. And in that book, he talks about what he calls a lollipop moment. And this is one of the most viewed TED Talks that are out there, Drew Dudley lollipop moment. He tells a story about an interaction that he had with a young woman on campus when he was uh, in academics. And in the book, he tells us that he has no memory of this event. But years later, he was contacted by her and invited to her wedding as a profound influence on her life. And he got the invitation and did not know who she was. But she, he, he reached out and she told him the story of what he had done for her on her first day at university and it changed her life. And I won't tell the whole story because Drew tells it much better than I do. And I'll encourage you to go find the lollipop moment. But after being exposed to that concept by Dudley, I'm now seeking lollipop moments, right? What are moments that are not that important to me? You know, they, they're just part of my daily activity, but have a profound impact on the other person. And then vice versa, what events in my life have had a profound impact on me? And can I tell someone that it was a lollipop moment? So for example, I've been seeking that man who influenced my life at 13 and the trail is too cold. I can't find him, right? I would love to tell him that you guided my life. You created a very successful career and a very happy person. I have shared this story with a number of my friends. And one of them told me, well, Scott, you created a lollipop moment for me. It's like, oh, tell me more. Oh, I just got a chill. <laughs> about she had, had been in a negative work environment, a negative work experience, was worried that she was going to get fired, was worried that maybe she was going to quit. And I offered her a job in my organization. And when I did that, I asked her what she wanted to do, which nobody had ever asked her before. And she said, you know, I'm close to losing my job. I'm just going to tell them the truth. And so she communicated what she wanted. And I was able to make that happen, you know, not because I was better than her current boss, but 
because I could think creatively about how to use her strengths and her skills to solve pro real problems that I had. And she went from, I'm worried about getting fired to being a high value, high performing employee. And the secret for me was use her inner strengths and ask her and talk to her and engage with her about how she did her job. And I just was doing what I do. And I didn't realize it was different until she stopped me when after I told this Drew Dudley story and said, wait a minute, you did a lollipop thing for me. You changed my life. You turned me from somebody who was struggling and scrabbling and worried about being able to perform to somebody who performed well and had confidence. And in the end, she worked for me for, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years, something like that. Wow. And she never had the same job for more than six months in a row because there was always a new need. I had always had multiple needs and she was somebody who could talk to me about what she wanted to do and she would jump at those needs and she became a key member of our staff. Oh my gosh. That is, that speaks to everything that I do in terms of StrengthsFinder and understanding what really feeds people and when you feed them, when you nourish those strengths and you help build their confidence, they can do anything. Uh, I love that. She clearly has adaptability in her top talents because she needs to change. She needs to switch gears. She needs yes. to feed that. Maintenance is not her, her thing. And for me, uh, excellence is part of my core values. And so I've learned that by understanding, growing, and developing strengths, we can reach excellence. Fixing weaknesses only breeds mediocrity. I'm not interested in mediocrity. And so I'm willing to work with people to use their strengths in order to reach for excellence, which is important to me. I love it. I love it. Just got to chill. And I love the whole concept of the lollipop moments because I know I have a few. I actually sent um, a holiday card with a picture of my family to a doctor that treated me when I was in college. And he was so kind and um, respectful toward me when I was in a difficult situation that 20 years later, there I was with my own, not even 20 years, I was there with my own family living in Montana and found him and, and physically wrote a thank you card to him. And he actually wrote me back a little postcard, letting me know how meaningful that was. So those lollipop moments, being able to look back and say, this person made, was such an influence on me. And then, you know, I know you probably know this, um, Melissa Hughes does a lot of work around neuroscience and gratitude. And one of the things that has stuck with me from one of her books, Happier Hour with Einstein, is that when we write a thank you note, when we physically write thank you to somebody. And whether it's just the words, thank you, love Sarah, or an, an actual letter, we get this big boost of oxytocin, that, that feel good, happy brain chemical. And then what's interesting is that the person who receives it, of course, also gets, gets that boost, which is wonderful. What Melissa says is that I actually get a bigger boost than they do by writing it. So the more we can acknowledge those lollipop moments that happened for us, the better that is for us, which is amazing to me. And as wonderful as that is between two individuals, we can also extend it to a team or an organization. 
So one of the things I did in my last role is I instituted a gratitude jar in the business. And a bunch of the creative, you know, crafty people decorated it and we put it in a center point of prominence. But the point was that anytime during the month, somebody could write a little note. We put little pieces of paper next to it and a pen. Hey, thank you, John, for your help on this project, or thank you for covering me while I was on vacation or whatever. And they'd put those notes into the jar. And then at our monthly business meeting, I would take each note out of the jar and read them in front of the entire group. Those notes produced tears, laughter, joy. Now, the person who wrote it got a benefit. The person who they wrote it to got a benefit. But everybody in the organization got a benefit because they saw the positivity going on between the two individuals. Right. It was great. I learned that trick from the Center for Positive Organizations at the University of Michigan. And that has been a, a nice win in our team, in our organization. Wow. So that was your former job as lab manager, correct? That okay. was yeah, so when I was a, a lab segue. manager. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this is a perfect segue. Part of why we connected and part of why I wanted to talk to you about this is because you made a huge switch in your career about, was it 18 months ago or so? Yes. Um, and even moved your household, <laughs> which I know is big. Um, so I, I, I think what I'd love to do in this conversation is kind of shift to that because we've, this is a full circle conversation. You've already talked about all the different things a scientist can do without going in, into academia. What was that switch and what was the specific moment where you decided, oh yeah, this is what I want to do next? So the switch was, so I had been in labs, working in labs for 30 years, industrial analytical labs, both for a big company and running our own uh, small CRO lab. Uh, What's a CRO lab? Sorry, contract research organization. So we basically did science for hire. Cool. So it it is cool. I I enjoyed that business because of the diversity. All sorts of customers brought us all sorts of problems. And I'm a natural born problem solver. So it was just the smorgasbord of problems that were there every day. And we got paid to do it. It's like, how how great is that? But that, uh, that position wore me down, wore me out, had physical ramifications. I got sick. I was, I was, I was not doing well mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It was, that job was killing me. And so during the COVID crisis, senior leadership, they laid me off from that position. You say, well, Scott, isn't that a crushing event? To get, you've been with them for 30 years and they you know, encounter this little bit of headwind and they lay you off. Okay. It was a bad hour. Getting laid off was a bad hour. But in the second and third hours, I realized that it might have saved my life getting laid off. And now I... I had to look for another. I wasn't ready to retire. I I was too busy, too active. I needed the structure of work. And so I started consulting. And one of my consulting clients asked me for a a project proposal to do work for them. And I wrote the proposal. And I was trying to figure out as a consultant how to get paid to do this proposal. And I had four choices. And I was all set to hit send. And I pulled my finger back and I added a fifth 
option, which was hire me full-time. Hit send, send it off, didn't really think about it. The next morning, my phone rang and the executive vice president of that company said, we received your proposal. We really want to talk about that fifth choice. Hmm. It's like, okay, let's talk about that fifth choice. What's interesting is in many ways, I designed my own job because I wrote the proposal for it. I love my new job. I have lots of different kinds of responsibility, but the key thing that I do is that I tell stories. I teach. And so I teach by writing, by writing articles for the magazine. I teach our internal staff about what lab management looks like. So the magazine I work for is Lab Manager Magazine. And I teach our internal staff about what being a lab manager is like. I get to speak my stories because I do webinars and I do uh, other formal presentations. But now I'm also responsible for developing our academy and I get to build training courses, certification courses in lab management that builds upon my experience as a lab manager. So I have many different vehicles to tell my stories. And all I can tell you is it makes me happy. And it's brilliant working for a company that has a positive culture and supports me. You know, I told you that the previous company, they were killing me, literally. I mean, I physically, I got sick. I had, I needed surgery. It was, it was trouble. And now I'm, I feel so much better. I am much healthier. I've lost weight. I'm, I'm sleeping. And, you know, I feel like my life is fulfilled working in this environment where before I felt like they were you know, crushing my soul. Oh, oh, that is just painful even to hear. I mean, I, I'm feeling your pain. I can, I can sense it. It's like you're exuding this um, reality of what your job was before. So tell me, um, when you think about that first experience working with this new organization, you mentioned to me in our previous conversation something about how successful you've been with this company. Can you just share a little bit about what what has changed for them as a result of having you there? So this is a team effort, and I love working with the team, and all of them have contributed to this success. But interestingly, business success correlates with my arrival. You know, could they have achieved it without me? Sure, maybe, but it correlates with my arrival. And I think there's a couple of things that go on. One is that they needed another senior leader just to keep things going, right? They're growing fast. They needed another senior leader to reduce the burden of leadership. But perhaps the biggest thing is I've injected a lot of confidence into the business because I'm the subject matter expert now on the thing that everybody in the business is trying to accomplish, which is to communicate important things to lab managers. And I have a lot of experience doing that, both being it and doing it. And I can just see the confidence level of our editors go up and the confidence level of our sales team go up and the confidence level of our leadership team go up because I'm able to confirm and validate the things that they're trying to do and to maybe set aside some of the things that weren't working. And that confidence now has grown within the organization so that everybody is playing to their strengths better. And the whole team, you know, the, the, the rising tide raised the entire boat yes. and everybody is performing at a higher level. 
That's just amazing. And I can associate that with uh, an analogy here. When um, my husband and I are musicians and we're, we're pretty good musicians. We've been playing with a guy, a, a incredibly talented musician. He plays a lot of instruments, but he plays the bass when he plays with us. And every time he comes for practice, I feel like my husband and I improve as musicians. We work harder. We hear what he's doing. He's encouraging and kind and supportive. It's not like he's critique, critiquing us or anything, but we want to be better because he is so talented. And I always feel like he comes in and our skill sets just improve. We're more soulful. We're more technically competent. So I hear that. It's kind of amazing how that happens. One person can can do that, especially with a team that's already competent. Yeah, this team is great. You know, in my previous life as a lab manager, I was always disappointed by how much time I needed to spend dealing with poor performers. It was mm -hmm. just frustrating. In my new role, there aren't any poor performers. And, and it's amazing how freeing that is, how much more time I have available. And I can focus that time on the high performers and then it's reinforcing their strengths. And now we can grow and we can grow greater than a linear way. That It's interesting you say that, that you had poor performers that were frustrating and discouraging for you. Do you I mean, it's not a surprise to me that you'd have poor performance in a place that rips people's souls out of their bodies, <laughs> right? Yes, true. <laughs> and I, I don't know who needs to hear this, which of our listeners needs to hear this, but A, if you are in a place where you feel like your soul is being ripped out of your body, there are better places for you. There are places where you can soar and, and again, rise that tide with all the others in, in, the, in the ocean. Um, but also for employers that need to hear this, you are going to have poor performers as long as you treat people the way that you wouldn't want to be treated, as long as you are not recognizing of the people who work for you. Ooh, that's intense. You think about the difference in culture in those two organizations. Absolutely. And you, in any business, people costs are the biggest costs. And so even if you think about it through a financial lens of these people are cost, then what are you doing to recoup that investment? And how are you treating those people in order to enable them to get the best out of their role, which means they'll deliver the best for the organization? Mm -hmm. I think the pandemic has been horrible in many ways, but it's also a changing point in how we work. And I think companies are going to have to wrestle with the idea that employees have more power in the relationship of work post-pandemic than they had pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that in a number of ways within our culture. But I think having a more flexible approach to how you treat your people and valuing retention just a little more so that you treat them better and keep them. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, they're calling it the great resignation for a reason. Um, people aren't going back to work. They're starting their own side gigs. They're colleagues. They're trying to avoid the um, pressure and obnoxiousness of so many bosses. 
one of the things that keeps popping into my head is the idea that I, I was working with a coaching client who was known to be aggressive and a bully. And um, I, I asked her, I said, well, how do you want people to describe you? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? And she said, well, I want to be a leader. I, I, I want to um, I want to manage people. And I said, well, what do you what do you want to manage in people? Performance? She said, yeah. And I said, well, if you're known as a boss, as a bossy, bully, kind of aggressive person, do you think you're going to bring out the best in the people who are working for you? The, the object of true leadership is to create more leaders, right? The object of leadership isn't to create more followers. The object of leadership is to create more leaders. And if you're not creating leaders, you're just being a bossy, micromanaging bully, right? You're not being exactly. a leader. Exactly. Well, and the worst part is the cost, not just to the organization, but the emotional health that you're extracting from these people that are working for you. The first thing she said was, I don't care what people think. And I said, <laughs> well, okay, but you can't be a good leader, a good manager. You can't bring out the best in people if you're being perceived as a bully. That's just the way that it is. It's an interesting exercise. My father always read the newspaper every day, and I learned to read the newspaper at his knee. And I can remember being little enough to sit on his lap to read the newspaper together. And he read every page, which included the obituaries. And so I'm a habitual newspaper reader, and I read it all, including the obituaries. It's an interesting uh, experiment to write your obituary. And the first thing you learn in reading obituaries is it might give you one line to your career, right? Scott was a general manager of an analytical lab or an editorial director at a magazine. That's it. It's not all your list of accomplishments, not your awards, your bonuses, your customers, your sales targets. All the rest of it is about you as a human. And so what are you going to write? And what is somebody else going to write about you? Mm -hmm. And it, if it turns into something that's really short, well, that's data. Yeah, <laughs> that is definitely, um, it should be an alarm bell going off in your head, for sure. I think about that a lot, not in a morbid way, but in a legacy way. I, I, I went to a lot of funerals in the last five years, unfortunately, between my father, my father-in-law, some dear friends. One recent one that I went to was my friend's mother who had been sick for a little while. And I remember hearing what people were saying about her and I know her, I had never met her, but my friend is a very dear friend of mine. And so I felt like I needed to go and support her. I will never forget sitting in that audience feeling like I knew her mother by the end of this mm -hmm. memorial, which was 40 minutes, but I knew her, I knew her heart. I knew her love. I knew so much more about her. I had no idea what she did in terms of income producing activities, but I can tell you how she made hundreds of people feel about themselves, about their lives, about their communities. Um, and that was for me, walking out of there was one of those big aha moments. This is really an important thing to be considering. <laughs> It goes wow. back to the Maya Angelou quote, right? That nobody will mm -hmm. remember what you said or what you did, but they will always remember how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. And so if you make people feel small, they're going to remember that. And if you make them feel big and, you know, and elevated and supported, they will remember that.
Yeah, absolutely. And you think about the impact on our overall communities. The more of us that do that, the more of us that care about making people feel bigger as opposed to smaller, um, I, I can only see that as huge positive improvements in our, in our communities. And we need that more than ever. Absolutely. And we need it from all facets of the community, right? Not just the traditional political leaders, but from every voice, we need it. Absolutely. And especially from our scientists right now. (laughs) (laughs) Really, the more I think about that, the more I just want to amplify those voices. Um, There's a woman, Bijane Kareem, out of Atlanta, Georgia, that is doing amazing things in terms of acknowledging STEM among um, communities and what that means at a very um, micro level of children and teachers and communities understanding science and why that's important. So there are voices out there that are speaking this language. And um, I am so grateful that you're one of them, Scott. Thank you. I think it's really important. Clearly, I'm a scientist and I believe in the scientific method and the scientific mission. But we need this in our complex, technologically driven world that we live in. We we need to be able to maintain the progress of science in order to address the ta- the challenges we have, whether it's climate change or uh, food security or energy security or water security, all of those are going to, the answers to those things rest in science. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And not just academic science. (laughs) That's right. Again, coming back to the very beginning of this conversation, um, Scott, if our guests want to learn more about you, um, if the people who are listening to this want to learn about you and a little bit more about what you do, opportunity to speak. What's the best way for them to either connect with you or follow what you're doing? So probably the easiest way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. And I think, Sarah, you have my LinkedIn connection. So I enjoy meeting people and engaging in these kinds of conversations. And LinkedIn is a great entry point. If you want to know more about what we're doing to communicate science through Lab Manager, you can go to the Lab Manager website or to the Academy website to learn more about how we are trying to train lab managers. And those are other entry points to get to me and to see what we're doing and to join the conversation. Perfect. And for our listeners, don't stop the recording to go grab a pen. I will include these links in the show notes associated with this podcast on elkinsconsulting.com. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was really a joy for me. And I'm glad that you had me on. Are you ready to start your story portfolio so you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself? When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, is available in all the regular places. And the audiobook version is available on Google Play and on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, The audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change, in my living room in Montana. Also on my website is a free podcast interview checklist. It's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate the podcast 
and leave a review and let me know that you've done it so I can thank you properly. Thank you. Could you tell me that you're going away?